0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about a bloke named Thomas Blood. This was his actual real name, apparently, Thomas Blood. Uh, who was a thief, a kidnapper, con man, turncoat, impersonator, traitor, and just just general rogue? If you if you needed if you needed some roguery perpetrated in 17th century Ireland and England, Colonel Blood was your man. Don't even worry about it. In fact, he wasn't even actually a colonel. This was another one of his tricks. He gave himself the title of Colonel, um, but his reputation as one of the most audacious and brazen thieves in history is very well deserved, as you'll see, for all the, for all the pomp and circumstance surrounding everything else. His, uh, all, you know, all, all the kidnapping, all the charlatanism, all, all that sort of stuff, all very minor, all very minor, uh, compared to his greatest accomplishment. Thomas Blood once attempted the heist of the century. He tried to steal the theft of the crown jewels. From the Tower of London, this bloke's life is incredibly interesting. Uh, I mean, what what a story he has! Um, and without wanting to, you know, sort of get too clickbaity here, you're not you're not going to believe what happened to him after his attempt on the ground on, on the crown jewels. I mean, I've already got you click. In, on, in all honesty, I mean, I've already got you click. You're already listening, so there's no there's no need for me to clickbait stuff. You, you, I've already got you hooked, mate. The hard part is over. I mean, thinking about that now would be the point at which I'd try to convince you to sign up for a bloody VPN or buy razors or have. Overpriced bundles of food, you know, sent to your home directly. with ease and convenience. I'm just, I'm, I've missed, the, I've completely missed the boat there. Anyway, we've got a lot to get across today with Colonel Blood or Captain Blood, as he was also sometimes known. So let's get underway here. Special thanks go to Matt Beal. I hope I'm saying that correctly. B I H L Beal. Uh, who got in touch to uh, suggest Thomas Blood as a topic for an episode. So good on you there, Maddie. Absolute ripper topic it is too, so thank you very much. But let's get to it. Let's get to it and have a chat about this bloke, Thomas Blood. We're going all the way back, all the way back to 1618 here, early uh, early 17th century, to County Clare in Ireland, which uh, at the time... Was part of the Kingdom of Ireland at this point. Uh, The history of Ireland, obviously, it is a tangled, bloody web. I can tell you that much. And uh, and even what's going on over, you know, even what's going on there today is it still absolutely mystifies me. Uh, But at this point in history, um, at this point, the in the islands—that's Ireland with an S—in the islands' history, it's a kingdom. Uh, ruled in personal union by the king or queen of England, and then later on the king or queen of Britain after Scotland was brought under the English yoke in uh, in 1707. Um, and just to reiterate, uh, for principally, let's be honest, principally for, for all the Americans listening, for all, our, all of our American friends here rather than anyone else, Ireland today, with an, with an R, Ireland today is not part of the UK, except for a little bit of the island, with an S, up north, which remained with the UK while the rest of Ireland, with an R, became a republic, and Irish people don't like being called British. Irish people do not do they do not appreciate being called British, so don't make that mistake. Um unless they're from Northern Ireland, in which case they are British, but then a lot of people from Northern Ireland don't identify with the UK either, so you're on thin ice there. It's look, it's kind of like mistaking a Canadian for an American, obviously a grievous insult to any Canadian except you know, instead of a Canadian apologising profusely for being offended by you, uh, you'll just get a furious Irish person calling you an eejit or a gobshite. So, you know, it's definitely something to be avoided. Anyway, Thomas Blood. He's born in the Kingdom of Ireland, out west in County Clare, in 1618. Uh, although we don't have too many other details about his birth, and don't know don't know too much about his upbringing. His family was reasonably well off. We know that his dad was a blacksmith of English extraction, and uh, owned a fair bit of land uh, for someone in the middle class. You know, he wasn't he wasn't part of the aristocracy. He aristocracy, wasn't part of the nobility, but he still he, he came from a family that did own a lot of land. And uh, young Thomas, he grew up in Ireland with an R, uh, moving to County Meath, which is near Dublin, for a few years, and then was bundled off to Lancaster in England with an E uh, to be Educated. And it was there that he met the woman that he went on to marry at the age of 20, Maria Holcroft, the daughter of an English politician. And a little after this marriage, uh, Blood returned to Ireland with an R uh, with his new wife in tow and settled down there, uh, well, briefly, uh, you know, and I say briefly because in 1642, as you probably all are very, very, very well aware, 1642, the English Civil War broke out, pitting Royalists against Parliamentarians, or as they're sometimes known, the Cavaliers against the Roundheads. And the whole conflict has got a lot going on with it. We're not going to be be able to get across all of it here today. But here's the quick version of how at least it kicked off, right? Charles I, the King of England, Scotland and and Ireland, and also, I suppose, Wales as well. We we always forget poor old Wales. Um, Charles I was not an immensely popular monarch. He uh, He was Catholic in all but name while ruling an Anglican country. Uh, And he was seen as being very, very close to, you know, more or less an absolute monarch, right? This is because he had uh, dismissed Parliament in 1629 and, and ruled without it for over a decade, although eventually this caused him to run out of money because Parliament's main concern was, of course, collecting taxation both then and now. Uh, And so in 1641, a near bankrupt Charles recalled Parliament and uh, knowing that it had the king by the ghoulies, Parliament began to aggressively expand its political power, abolishing or undoing a lot of what Charles had done over the last 10 years. And by the next year, by 1642, Charles had had a gutful. He responded by storming into Parliament and attempting to arrest five uh, uh, parliamentarians, which obviously, you know, went down like a fart in an elevator. Um, and so the English Civil War began in 1642. The Royalist Cavaliers fighting the Parliamentarian Roundheads, led by Charles I on uh, on one side, and Oliver Cromwell and also I guess Sir Thomas Fairfax. We all, we always forget uh, poor old Fairfax, uh, respectively here, right? So the the, the Cavaliers with uh, with Charles, the Roundheads with Cromwell, um, and our mate Thomas Blood. You know he's not going to stand. He's not. I'll tell you this. He is not going to stand for the scandalous affront to the honour of the divinely mandated leadership of King Charles. Oh, no, no, no. The right of a king to rule his lands and his subjects is beyond question. There can be no doubt that Charles is firmly in the right and and is obviously waging a just war against the usurping and the traitorous roundheads who... Oh, hang on, what? Wait, what? What's that? Oh, Charles is losing the war, you say? Oh. Okay, well, as I was saying, tyranny and oppression must never go unanswered. No man should be allowed to wield unlimited power, king or no. And Charles has shown us all how cruel a tyrant he must be. He must be made to answer for all he has done. And as I have always said, the will of the parliament must be heard and must be respected. Blood, uh, yeah, was a, a turncoat and a huge one as well. He saw which way the wind was blowing and switched sides halfway through the war and uh, there was no indication whatsoever that he becoming a turncoat was based on you know ideological ideological concerns or anything else like that it was just bald faced pragmatism he just recognized that he you know probably wanted to fight for the winning side and so he uh, he became a turncoat i mean you got to hand it to him for his you know very expedient approach to this sort of thing i mean after all why fight for the losing side so blood switched sides he fought for the roundheads and as, as soon as it became clear that they were you know on track to win and this proved to be a good move as it turned out. Blood was charged with raiding and capturing uh cavalier supplies, something that he ended up being extremely proficient at doing. This bloke, you know, as, again, he was a rogue, he was a charlatan to the core, and uh, and while he was uh, he, he was very good at acquiring royalist supplies, he also made sure to uh skim a little off the top for himself there before handing uh you know, handing stuff over to the roundheads. Anyway, Cromwell and the parliamentarians, of course, were ultimately victorious. Charles was captured. He refused to negotiate with his captors uh, and was thereafter found guilty of treason and given a rather aggressive haircut in front of. Uh An enormous crowd in 1649, just a little bit off the top there. Thank you, headsman. Um, And uh, the English Civil War uh, came to an end a couple of years later in 1651. And I tell you what, blood picked the right side to be on as we uh, move into a period of English history that is referred to as the interregnum, right? The parliamentarians, they won a decisive victory. They redefined the concept of constitutional monarchy and they set the stage for the Glorious Revolution in 1688, which finally confirmed the ultimate sovereignty of parliament, right? But anyway, back here in the 1650s, Blood, right, he ends up on the winner's side, as I say, winner, winner, chicken dinner, and he's loving life because he is rewarded for his efforts uh, fighting for the roundheads. Cromwell rewarded Blood with great big tracts of land, made him a justice of the peace, bloody brilliant. Great job there, Blood, old son. He is loving life. He's just won a war after some extremely well-timed turning of the old coat there. He's got all this land, fancy new title, brilliant. However... As students of English history will know, this wasn't to last uh, forever for our mate here, because after a couple of years in uh, in 1658 Cromwell died, and the interregnum finally ended just two years later in 1660, with the restoration of the Stuart monarchy as Charles II, the the son of the exiled son of Charles I, took the English throne. Now, once again, you've got to hand it to Blood because he showed excellent judgment in getting himself out of a sticky situation. This won't be the last time either. He read the writing on the wall and he realised that uh, he was going to be up a certain creek without a certain, uh, you know, uh, propulsion device here, because Charles II immediately began to reverse and repeal all of Cromwell's land grants and appointments and all the rest of that, which of course was to include what blood had received. So as a result, he fled back across to Ireland, he packed up his family and sped uh, sped us off across the Irish Sea back to his native land uh, to avoid any further reprisals. He was, however, financially ruined by this. Obviously, these great big tracts of land that he'd had in England were very, very profitable for him. He was a very prosperous bloke over there in England. But after moving back across to Ireland, unfortunately, you know, being forced to abandon his wealthy estates in England, he wasn't happy about that. And uh, it was a bit of a bit of a riches to rag story for our mate Blood there. And he was so unhappy with this. He was so unhappy with what had happened to him here. That he began to plot and scheme against the royal powers back in Ireland itself. And I'll tell you this, he wasn't the only one. There were plenty of other ex roundheads or, you know, Cromwellian sympathizers who found themselves in a similar position over on the island of Ireland. And so Blood, he got together with these blokes and they said, Well, listen, to him. I'm just bloody sick of this. These bloody, I mean, this, this buddy Charles II bloke, who does he think he is coming in bloody undoing all the stuff that Oliver Cromwell did? Unbelievable. Absolute disaster, right? So they hatched a plan to get their own back against the royal oppressors from the other side of the Irish Sea here. And the bloke in charge, never mind the fact that Oliver Cromwell also did a you know, a fair bloody bit of oppression in Ireland as well. well. We'll we'll leave that to one side for the moment. Anyway, they are looking to get themselves, get, you know, get their own back against, uh, against the royals uh, over there in England. And the bloke in charge of Ireland at this stage, the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, was a fella named James Butler, the First Duke of Ormond. And uh, he lives in Dublin Castle, which is in Dublin, surprisingly, Uh, and Blood and his fellow conspirators, they decided that they were going to give him the business. They decided their best course of action would be to storm the castle, kidnap Ormond, and seize control of Ireland, with an R. And this plot, this plot, as daring and as uh, you know, as bold as it was, never came together. Unfortunately, the plot was foiled. And in 1663, after you know, uh, trying to pull this conspiracy together, Blood and the rest of the uh, conspirators they were found out and they were forced to flee for their lives. Now, Blood he fled to the the United Provinces, to the Netherlands. uh, But not all of his his conspirators were quite so lucky. They didn't get out of there. Some of them ended up getting captured and executed. And Blood, as you can imagine, was not the type to take this lightly. And it's believed that he actually swore an oath of vengeance against Ormond. He swore that he would have his, you know, he would have his revenge. But of course, as we all know, revenge is like a big bowl of gazpacho. It is best served cold. And so our mate Blood, he settled down in the United Provinces and he bided his time for a, for a good little while there, waiting for the opportune moment. He rubbed shoulders with the rich and powerful, He used uh, using his... Obviously, min-maxed charisma score to make friends with, you know, high-ranking Dutch official officials and a few wealthy English aristocrats who were still sort of, you know, sympathetic to uh, to what had happened before here. But for the most part, he didn't do anything too outrageous. He just, he just, again, put his head down and got on with things over there in the Netherlands until about 1670, when, uh, in spite of the fact that he was still a wanted man in England for the whole Dublin castle affair he once again crossed back over into the British Isles. He established himself as a doctor or a pharmacist, an an apothecary, uh, setting himself just east of the city of London, and he worked there without raising suspicion for a little bit of time. But he did have an ulterior motive, however. He was cutting about, uh, you know, up to no good, up to his usual tricks here, because what he was doing, he began to surveil and track a bitter old foe of his, determined to have the last word in their feud later in the year, right? On the 6th of December, 1670, he made a dramatic return out of obscurity after, you know, months and months of, uh, of careful surveillance and and, uh, and and spy work, right? When he attempted to assassinate the Duke of Ormond after all these years he had not forgotten the oath of vengeance that he may have made there and as a result uh we see in December he actually he made an attempt on the Duke's life now Ormond he had returned to England after after living in Ireland for a while and was living in Clarendon House, an old mansion that uh, that used to be in, in, in London. And unbeknownst to him, he had been tailed and observed by Blood for quite some time. Blood had noticed that Ormond was uh, often out late at night, usually escorted by, you know, just a few footmen here and there. And so he began to put together a plan. Now, after figuring out Ormond's usual movements, Blood gathered together a, another band of conspirators here. And, uh, and perhaps hoping he'd have a little bit more luck than l- the last time he was getting involved in, uh, in you know, some, some cloak and dagger type stuff. On the 6th of December, they set out to do their grim work. They tailed Ormond down St. James's Street. Before leaping out and attacking his coach in the middle of the street, they dragged Ormond out, they tied him up, they forced him up onto one of the conspirators' horses and pinned a note to his chest uh, to be found later explaining why he, uh, he had been captured, although, of course, not by whom. Blood. And, uh, and his gang then took up at top speed while uh, with Ormond as their prisoner, intending to ride out to Tyburn, where public executions were often held. And there, using the gallows, they were going to hang him there. Today, you can actually go and visit the spot that the uh, was called the Tyburn Tree, a huge set of gallows where countless thousands were hanged. Uh, it once stood out near Marble Arch in London. You can actually go and see. They've got a little marker on the ground where the where the Tyburn tree used to used to stand, and that's where they were planning to take Ormond and Ormond and and again hang him <laughs> hang him by the neck until dead. However, one of Ormond's footmen had leapt into action, jumped on a horse, and given chase. And realizing that he, you know that there was a rescuer hot on 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 the heels of uh, of, of of these people. Ormond struggled with his captor, managed to free himself from uh, horseback where he was there like that, and Blood and his henchmen, as Ormond you know fell off the back of the horse onto the ground, they realized they had no choice but to flee. The alarm had been raised, they were in danger of being caught, but check this out, they got away with it. None of them were ever caught. None of them were ever even suspected of having had anything to do with it. The whole incident, of course, caused a huge stir, and and a massive reward was posted. But Blood got away with it scot free after putting all of his skill points into charisma and luck. I mean, it's amazing that he had anything left for any other stats, but not surprising that he'd get away with something like this, even though he had this, you know, this vendetta, this uh, this oath of vengeance uh, potentially sworn. Uh, against Ormond there. No one suspected that he had had anything to do with it at all, and so he got away with it. But now, revered listener, we come to the main course, Blood's most notorious and daring crime. Here comes the good stuff. So far, right, Blood had tried his hand at soldiering, kidnapping, assassination, and, and, and who knows what else, right? But in 1671, he decided he wanted to pull off a heist. During the interregnum, the crown jewels of England had been picked apart, melted down, pawned off, uh, or you know, basically cashed in uh, to fund the new English Republic. However, a lot of money had been put into the jewels during the restoration uh, of Charles II. Once Charles had come back in, he said, "Well, listen, you know, what's the good of being king if you don't have any bloody crown jewels, right?" So he organised a uh, grand replicas to be made uh, of the stuff that had been destroyed or, or, or pawned off, and uh, and organised basically a uh, you know a, a rebrand, a remastering. This is Crown Jewels 2.0 here for Charles II, um, and so he he, he dumped a, a just a huge amount of money into these new crown jewels, um, and they were housed in the Tower of London, and uh, since 1669, for a couple of years, they had been available for public viewing at the, you know, for a small fee. People, basically, they were two they tourist attraction. They, they, they were, for all intents and purposes, new. They were bright and shiny and worth squillions, and uh, people you know, flocked to the Tower of London to see them, but of course, it made them a very juicy target indeed for a heist. Now, I wasn't able to find out what Blood's motive was in deciding to steal the crown jewels. Maybe he decided that, you know, with a name like Colonel Blood, he already sounded like some kind of a supervillain and wanted to live up to the name he'd given himself. But uh, honestly, it, it can't have been just for the money. There were easier and there were safer ways for criminals to amass a fortune. So it really just may have been for the hell of it. Whatever the reason, Blood put together. Yet one more dastardly plot here, cunning and mischievous as ever, and in April or May 1671, he finally put things into motion. Now, the crown jewels, as I say, they were in the Tower of London, where they were looked after by the master of the jewel house, a 77-year-old bloke whose name was Talbot Edwards. Uh, the jewels themselves. Let me let me describe to you uh, the, the the various security measures that were in place to protect these jewels, because of course, very very valuable with 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 an uncountable fortune. These jewels were so you can imagine. Uh, yes, I, I want to describe to you here the uh, the, the security uh, the security features protecting these jewels. So they were kept in the basement of the tower uh, behind a large metal grill. That's it. That, I mean, that's it. I've described the entire security system protecting these jewels. An old bloke and a metal grill and a flight of stairs. That That's actually it. I mean, it, it may surprise you to learn that even by the standards of the time, this was not the most sophisticated or cutting edge security system that you could possibly imagine. Uh, but that, that is that, that is actually it. I mean, there were guards and stuff in the Tower of London, but not actually... One's uh, you know posted specifically to look after the jewels there. Anyway, obviously uh, our mate Blood he's uh, he's a he's a he's a clever chap. He's a quick thinker, and he realises that he needs to case the joint before he uh, he pulls off the heist here. And so one day, right, he puts the first step of his plan into motion, and one day he turns up at the Tower of London to see the jewels as a tourist, as so many others did at the time. He turns up, uh, dressed up as a parson, as a a clergyman, uh, disguised like that, and and took a woman with him. Uh, I read conflicting reports as to whether this was his, his wife, Maria, or if it was just someone else, you know, an actor that he'd got there. But in any case, Blood, uh, pl- posing as this, this clergyman, he, he, t- he took his wife, add inverted commas as necessary, I suppose, uh, along to the tower and met with Talbot Edwards to view the jewels. Talbot took them down to the basement and showed off the collection. Very nice. Sparkle, sparkle, sparkle. Oh, yes, very wonderful. Look at that. But while they were down there, Blood's wife or whatever, Blood's companion, began to complain of a stomachache, right? Began to complain. Oh, jeez. was just, oh, mate, it's, oh, it's bloody hurting. I'll tell you that much. Jeez. It, oh, jeez. I mean, I'm in a world of pain here. I'm in a world of hurt. So Edwards, who seemed to be a very kindly bloke, very, very, uh, very thoughtful and generous fella, uh, he lived upstairs from the jewels. And he says, well, listen here, don't worry about it, mate. Listen, I'll take you upstairs. Uh, My my wife's up there. She'll, you know, she'll look after you. So let's just get you upstairs. We'll get you sat down get, you know, see if we can make you feel a little bit better. So they go back upstairs into this little apartment. And, uh, and Edward's wife uh, offered uh, Blood's wife some, some spirits and, and gave her a chance to recover and, and just generally, you know, sort of look after her every after bit while she was putting on this stomachache. But Blood uh, he used this affair, this whole sort of little uh, kerfuffle here, he used this as a way to ingratiate himself with the Edwardses He thanked them profusely, you know, he and his wife, they're like, oh, thank you, you, know, you looked after us, so, well, you're taking us into your home, the, thank you so much, da-da-da, all the, all the rest of the stuff. And then after they'd left, right, he came back a few days later, yeah, and offered Mrs. Edwards a gift of, weirdly, four pairs of white gloves. I don't know if, it, you know, if old mate Talbot had accidentally married an octopus or something, but for, for whatever reason, this very strange gift was, uh, was very very well received. And uh, and blood, who was still posing as a parson, he secured the friendship of the Edwardses here, and he continued to visit them. The long con—he was on the long con here, mate. The grift—the grift was well and truly uh, was well and truly on here. Uh, and after a few visits, right, he mentioned that he had a young and wealthy nephew that would be a good match for their unmarried daughter. Now, of course, there was no such nephew, but the Edwardses were very ready to believe there was. I mean, they would no reason not to. You know, they would no reason to disbelieve him, right? They had no reason to not believe him. You know, after all, you don't go around doubting the words of a parson who gives you four pairs of gloves, do you? I mean, of course not, right? And so blood arranged with the edwardses to have dinner there at their place and he he says listen i'll bring along my nephew um uh, you know we can all have a nice meal have a cheeky squiz at the jewels how about that it'll be a lovely little get-together and they can you know your daughter and and my nephew could they can get to know each other a little bit now the edwardses then fall, they, they had fallen for this hook line and sinker and so on the 9th of may 1671 the heist was on blood arrived at the tower with three others on the 9th of May, a little early, a little earlier than he'd said he would. Uh, and he arrived with his, his nephew, definitely in inverted commas this time, and two friends of his nephew. Uh, again, lots of inverted commas all over the place, uh, because they were interested in, in just seeing the jewels very quickly. Now, they're all very well-dressed, all seem very respectable. You know, they had canes and fine clothing. and uh, And Edwards, he had no reason to suspect anything. And because they'd arrived a bit early, of course, dinner wasn't quite ready. And so Blood suggested that the four of them, they or the five of them now with Edwards, they all go down and 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 have a have a look, quick look at the jewels, visit the jewels while they waited. now Edwards, of course, he's got this you know, this friend Blood making this request. Oh, and he says, of course, absolutely, I, I, I'd be happy to oblige. And so he led the uh, the other four blokes uh, down into the basement, and, and they all go into the room. You know, there are the crown jewels behind the metal uh, behind the middle grill. But before you know, they even start ooing and ahring and uh, and going, oh my, boy, look at these bloody sparkling, all that sort of stuff. No, before before, as soon as Edwards had taken them inside of the room. Basically, Blood and his men slammed the door shut, drew rapiers from inside those canes that they had. They threw a cloak over poor old Edwards and they smacked him over the head with a mallet, knocking him out. They then made quick work of the heist. They tied up Edwards and they also stabbed him just for good measure. Poor old Edwards. Uh, and then got to work on getting the jewels themselves. They got rid of the, uh, you know, they got rid of the metal grill, got that out of the way. And then blood grabbed uh, St Edward's crown, picked up the mallet that they' would just used to bloody bonk poor old Edwards, and whacked and whacked the crown until it was flat enough to hide under his robes, under you know these these sort of priestly vestments that he had on. Another one of the blokes started to saw the scepter with the cross in half, as it wouldn't fit into their bag otherwise, right? While another one put the sovereign's orb, down his pants to hide it. Now, while these thieves were, you know, quickly uh, quickly doing their work, trying to, trying to nick as much of this stuff as possible, oh no, the alarm was raised. It was raised much faster than the thieves anticipated. Now, some sources say that Edwards himself was the one who came to and began to yell murder and treason, uh, while other sources said that Edwards' son Arrived on the scene, and he was the one who started yelling. But however it started, you know, no matter how it started, Blood and his gang they realised that they better make themselves pretty bloody scarce, pretty bloody quick. And so they abandoned the half sword scepter and they started to flee with their ill gotten gains. But here's the master stroke. You can imagine these, th- the, you know, these four thieves trying to make their way out of the heavily guarded Tower of London while, while you know, there's a the, the hue and cry has been raised. Everyone, everyone yelling murder, treason. Uh, you know, the the crown has been stolen, all that sort of stuff, right? They also started yelling. Well, you know, people are running around trying to apprehend, find the thieves. Blood and his mates are also yelling running around yelling, murder, treason, and all the rest of that. So, so they, they blend into the chaos. Absolute genius. And after finding their way out safely into the courtyard without being accosted, they jumped onto the horses that they'd left outside. no getaway driver here, just the horses. They pulled out the pistols that they'd hidden under their clothes. And they got ready to escape. They shot at the guards at the drawbridge. They sped out along the Tower Wharf, shooting their pistols left, right, and centre, ready to make their escape and, uh, and you know and 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 get away with uh, with these crown jewels. Pull off again the heist of the century. However, their escape was not destined to be successful. And with the alarm raised, well and truly, before they could get away, they were chased down and they were captured by the guards. The crown had fallen out of Blood's robes, uh, but it was, re- <laughs> it was recovered along with the orb, uh, which was uh, retrieved probably rather gingerly from the, from the pants of the thief who had nicked it. And obviously now, Blood and his mates, they are in deep poop. They are in deep poop. This was a point in history, remember, where uh, you know something like pickpocketing could send you to the gallows, never mind trying to nick the bloody crown jewels. I mean, these blokes, were absolutely, they were absolutely done for here. They were for it now. But are you ready? my friends, are you ready for another incredible moment of luck and charisma from the roguish hero of our story here? Blood refused. He point blank refused to speak to anyone about the heist. He wouldn't answer questions. He wouldn't address any of his captors. He insisted that the only person to whom he would answer was King Charles II himself. And if you'll believe it, His demands were met. Blood was brought before the king in chains, and he was told to give an account of himself. Now, tragically, this is really unfortunate. I looked high and low, but I could not find a record of the conversation that Blood had with the king here. And more's the bloody pity, because you're not going to believe what came of it. Charles was said to be so amused and so impressed by uh, by Blood's story here, with, you know, this the daring and the brazen attempt at a heist uh, that, that Blood had tried to pull off here, that he offered him a royal pardon. And what's more, the story gets even more ridiculous here, Charles also gave Blood lands and an entire estate in Ireland that would set him up with quite a sizable income. I mean, kings have have had people's heads lopped off for far, far less than this. And here was Charles saying, oh, off you go, mate, on your way. And here's an estate, by the way, here's an estate worth squillions. Again, blood seemed to have been tell- uncannily, eerily right? He, has, he seemed to have been able to tell exactly which way the wind was blowing and, and seen the exact right way to play out his hand. He may have known that Charles, you know, had a soft spot for tales of high adventure and was easily impressed by daring and adventurous scoundrels. And, and so he played into that masterfully. Although there are a couple of other suggestions that sort of explain what happened between Charles and uh, and Blood, even though we don't have the full uh, the full picture, all the details here. It is a bit murky. Another suggestion put forward, is that Charles was afraid, afraid of an uprising and that Blood's followers may seek reprisals if he were punished, although I don't really know how much that actually adds up. I mean, Blood was not a high-ranking nobleman with an army or anything. I, 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 I really don't know how much, that, how much water that one holds. But I did read another explanation that, the, <laughs> that does come up as even more ridiculous here. This one's got a bit of a tinfoil hat conspiracy theory vibe to it. Check this out. Uh, there, there are some historians that believe that the whole thing was an inside job, and that blood had actually been put up to it by charles in order to make money off the jewels i don't know what the end goal was there maybe blood steals them sells them tells charles who he sold them to and then all the king's horse and all the king's men go and arrest that person and blood gets look i don't know i don't know i mean the idea that he was a spy and that he'd been you know put up to it by the king is a is a very attractive and romantic one but uh, i don't know how accurate it is what look whatever it was the only records of the conversation that we have between, uh, between Blood and King Charles is Charles finding it hilarious, right, being so entertained and being so amused by this whole situation, especially when Blood cr- claimed that the crown jewels were only worth about £6,000 rather than the £100,000 that they were said to be valued at. And finally, it is definitely known, right, that King Charles asked Blood this question specifically. King Charles asked Blood, he said, "'What if I should give you your life?' To which Blood replied, I would endeavour to deserve it, sire. So Thomas Blood, the only person to ever come close to successfully stealing the crown jewels of the United Kingdom or the crown jewels of England as they were there, he got away with it and with rather more than his life. His new properties in Ireland were worth £500 a year, and he spent the next few years as a familiar face in the royal court, again, after this unflinching bit of villainy that proved to be extremely profitable here. He ended up just cutting about court with all the rest of the knobs there like that, having a great time. Now, blood lived out the next years in comfort and in prosperity, until 1679, a couple of years after the heist there, when an old friend and a patron of his, the Duke of Buckingham, actually brought a lawsuit against him. So his luck here seems to have actually finally run out as, as this uh, high-profile friend of him turned on him. Buckingham sued Blood for £10,000. That is a lot of money back then, £10,000 after Blood insulted him. And after the case was heard by the, uh, by the king's bench, Blood was convicted. And he was ordered to pay Buckingham the money. But you know what's coming next, don't you? You know what's coming next. Of course you don't. You've already guessed. Blood never paid Buckingham a penny of the money he owed. He once again found a way out of it. He got away with it completely. He used the cunning trickery and the shameless charlatanism that we all by now have come to expect from Blood. He pulled a trick that meant that he never had to pay Buckingham a single farthing. Although, admittedly, it's not the sort of trick that you could ever get away with a second time, because on the 24th of August, 1680, still in debt to the tune of £10,000, Colonel Thomas Blood died. And in doing so, (laughs) he got away with it one final time. As for the Crown Jewels, they were restored to the Tower after Blood's Heist. They were repaired and rejuvenated. And ever since, they have been, uh, they've been there uh, under, <laughs> under armed guard, I might add. And today, you can, uh, you can go and see them for yourself. The Crown Jewels, you can go and see them for yourself at the Tower of London. Although I understand they have uh, heightened the security arrangement uh, arrangements around these valuable artifacts, it's a little bit more than an old man and a flight of stairs and a metal grill. But I want to leave you with this thought here before we close this episode out. I want to leave you with this thought. The Crown Jewels, obviously very, very famous. One of the premier tourist attractions in the United Kingdom. They've been seen by millions and millions throughout the years, whether it's been in real life or in portraits and paintings and pictures. And I just want you to remember and think of this. The next time you see them, and the next time in particular, you see the Sovereign's Orb, that little ball with the, with the sort of the cross on the top of it. And whether it's in real life, whether it's in a, in a painting of an old monarch or a, or in a photograph of uh, of Queen Elizabeth II while holding them, just remember that in their proud and storied history, thanks to Thomas Blood's heist, they've been a lot closer than you might think to a rather more different set of crown jewels. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Colonel Blood, the Thief of Crowns. And I do hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much once again to Matt uh, Beal. I'll just apologise in advance for almost certainly butchering Matt's second name there. Anyway, if you want to follow in Matt's exalted footsteps, please do send in your topic suggestions, halfhousehistory.net or halfhousehistory.com. You can find the... uh, uh, you can find a contact form on the website there, uh, in addition to links to subscribe, of course. And if you want to leave me a review on iTunes, that'd certainly be, you'd be doing me, do me a great favor. Still sending off merch bundles if you want to buy something from the shop. Free shipping worldwide at Uh, uh You can buy magnets and, and badges and notebooks and, and t-shirts, all sorts of stuff available for purchase there. And of course, a special thank you go to all the Patreon supporters, uh, including a number of, uh, of Patreon supporters who have upped their, uh, upped their pledges uh in this unprecedented time uh, around the world I, I thank you so much for the continued support and i'm very much looking to looking forward to welcoming a couple of new executive producers into the fold uh in, in the coming weeks and months it's uh, it, it is really such a it's very humbling to have people at my back like this so thank you very much to all those people and thank you to you for listening even if you're not a patron supporter i really appreciate you taking you know half an hour 40 minutes out of your week to listen to my silly nonsense and uh and, uh, yeah, good on you. Thanks so much uh, to you and, of course, to the people who are telling their friends, their adversaries and the people about whom they feel largely ambivalent about the show. Anyone at all, all, all comers, I'll take. Uh, so anyone who's spreading the, the word of half a History, thank you so very much. Anyway, we're going to wrap things up here with a crown-related question. A lot of chat about crowns and, and crown jewels, of course, uh, this week. And so uh, Redditor Noponpon has got a crown-related question here. Why do dentists put a crown on a weak or a broken tooth? You'd think they'd make the strongest tooth the ruler, right?